Hello everyone out there. How is it going with you on this fine day, morning, evening, sunrise, sunset, a.m., p.m.? I'm not sure what time it is that you're listening to this on, but whatever, you're listening, you're here, so I am happy about that. You're listening to Screenspeak. It's the podcast that's all about movies, life, and so much more. I'm Jordan Anderson, the person talking into this microphone, the person that's hosting Screenspeak at the moment and for the future. I don't know why I said at the moment, because I'm going to continue to, but this is my podcast. This is my podcast. It talks all about movies, talks about its connections to life, some of the more introspective themes uh, that are underlying beneath a lot of movie surfaces. I get into a lot of different aspects, all covering uh, the world of movies. So if you're a movie lover, that's probably why you're here. If you love the movie Heat, or heard about its sequel, Heat 2, that's also probably why you're listening to this episode. But in any case, for whatever reason that you're choosing to listen to ScreenSpeak today, I am very appreciative of you doing that. So thank you very much. All right, got to get those plugs out of the way so that we can get into the meat of the episode. Uh, If you haven't done so already, go ahead and follow or download episodes of ScreenSpeak on whatever it is that you're listening to this on, whether it's a phone, a computer, or whatever service it is, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Uh, There's so many podcast services out there these days. There's uh, Samsung Podcasts, Podcast Index. Uh, Pandora, there's TuneIn, there's Stitcher, there's iHeartRadio, there's Deezer. There's so many of them. So whatever it is that you're uh, listening to it on, go ahead and hit the follow button so that way I know you're listening. Not like you personally, but I can just see the number of listeners. That's how we gauge growth, right? Uh, So go ahead and do that so that we can just go ahead and continue to grow the ScreenSpeak community together. I would really, really appreciate that. Also, Social media, most of us use it out there. Screen speaks out there on social media as well. You can find it on Instagram just by searching at ScreenSpeak Podcast. Again, that's at ScreenSpeak Podcast on Instagram. Find us, follow us on there, and go ahead and check out exclusive content for the podcast there. And lastly, you can check out the Facebook community group, uh, which is just simply titled ScreenSpeak. So if you're on Facebook sometime, go ahead and type in ScreenSpeak, hit hit a request to join. That's what I'm trying to say, request to join. And then uh, shortly afterwards, you'll just be reviewed to make sure that you're not a robot or a spam account, whatever. And then you will be admitted. And then from there, you can ask uh, myself any questions that you want about the podcast, about movies, about really anything. Or you can just share uh, memes about movies, talk about movies with the other community members there. It's a lot of fun. Uh, So I definitely encourage you to get involved with that as well. Okay. Let me check my imaginary list right now of other plugs that I could incorporate into this episode. Um, No, that's it. Okay. Thanks very much for getting through that. Let's get on with the show. All right. So if you're listening to today's episode, I assume that you have probably seen the movie Heat and or heard about its uh, sequel in the form of a book, Heat 2. If you haven't, uh, I say that because this is going to be a spoiler-filled episode because let's face it, Heat, the movie, it's been out since 1995. I want to say that's Yeah, it came out in 1995. Let me just be specific on this because otherwise it will drive me insane. When did Heat come out? Let's see. When did Heat come out? Uh, Yeah, December 15th of 1995. Okay, so tail end of 95, but all the same. It's been out for some time, so I assume that you have probably seen it and or are a big fan of it. But the book... 
Uh, I'm actually not really certain how many people have actually gotten around to reading that because that uh, came out, I want to say, on August 1st of this year. So it's it's actually a very, very recent uh, release, I want to say. Uh, but anywho, it's, it's actually the first time I've talked about a book directly uh, on, on ScreenSpeak, so I'm, I'm pretty excited to do that. But it makes sense because, of course, it is a sequel to a, a classic, classic film. So let's just go ahead and get started. All right, so first things first, these are my initial thoughts on the movie Heat. Heat is an incredible film. Uh, I, I don't really know how else to say it. It is fantastic. I mean, you have Robert De Niro and Al Pacino and Val Kilmer. I would argue all of them are in their primes during the making and uh, time frame of this movie. I would also say that this movie is incredible because of its ensemble casting, uh, whether it's John Voight, uh, Ashley Judd, William Fickner, uh, hell, the guy that plays Bubba uh, in Forrest Gump. People call me Bubba. Uh, that actor, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Uh, you got time, uh, Tom Sizemore uh, back when he was a thing. So a lot of really great talent on display in the movie. It's also tightly directed uh, by the great Michael Mann. Uh, I think it's, it's you could argue that he is probably Michael Mann's strongest, best movie. Uh, that's debatable for sure. Uh, but it's definitely, definitely up there with his top films. And I just love the the visceral approach that Michael Mann brings to all of his movies, uh, the way he shoots them, especially the way that he captures action, uh, particularly in the sound editing, I, I want to add, because that almost never gets enough credit in movies where they pull it off right. Uh, he, he does an, an immaculate job uh, filming and depicting the action. It's it's very raw. It's very real. Um, and, and, and it's intense. But I, I don't know. I mean, few, few people do it like Michael Mann. So... In other words, if I'm watching a Michael Mann movie, I mean, I I know I'm watching a Michael Mann movie and I'm not watching somebody else's movie. Uh, a lot of other movies, I think, over the years since Heat has come out have tried to, I don't want to say replicate Heat, but they have certainly tried to get on its level, right? I mean, I, I think Heat, in a lot of ways, set the bar, Um for bank robbery movies, for heist movies, for crime thrillers, you name it, it, it really did set a high standard for that, I think, going forward in the years ahead. So that's the, I mean, that's my simple thoughts on Heat just from like, you know, how I classify the movie and, and again, those like initial thoughts. But if I'm digging deeper in the movie, what I think really works for me personally and why I think the movie is standing, uh, is withstanding of the test of time is the way that it approaches the characters. Regarding the characters, you really do get a sense of intimacy with them. You get an idea of who they are as a person, their motivations, their their hopes, their fears, um, their imperfections. I mean, they're really, really well fleshed out in the movie. And I think the scene that stands out the most, at least for most of the film community that really obsesses over, over this movie or, or really enjoys it, is the coffee shop scene, which I will definitely do an analysis on that later on in the podcast. Uh, but that that scene, I think, in particular, really captures um, the duality, uh, the complex duality that is is captured and, and analyzed uh, beneath the beneath the surface of the characters in Heat. So I, I really think that that's to me anyway why the movie is not just a you know like a mindless action movie or anything like that is that it really does have characters that are deep that are complex and ultimately collide in a way that is 
that's incredible to watch and incredibly entertaining. So that that's that's my thoughts on Heat. Now, as far as the book, okay, and I'm I'm picking up the book right now, looking at it. Uh, first off, it's a pretty thick book. Uh, and, and I think I mentioned this before in the intro of the show. This is the first time I've openly talked about a book. Um, so we'll, we'll see how this goes. I, I'm by no means a, like a writer. I, I, I don't. Uh, I, w- I wish I could say that I read more than I actually do. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 I get busy and, and I got a life. I got a lot of things that I do, a lot of interests. Uh, and unfortunately, books don't always uh, rank at the top. But that said... I will tell you, I enjoyed reading this book. I very much enjoyed reading the book. It took me a while. Uh, it was a book that I read primarily before going to sleep, uh, which I actually recommend as far as reading books go, just for the record. Uh, it's, I think it's healthy. I, I don't know if, it's, if that's true or if I'm just you know making stuff up, but I think reading books at night before you fall asleep is healthy, uh, certainly healthier than being on your phone for like you know an hour that goes by, and then before you know it, you're like, oh god, it's two in the morning, and I was just watching stupid videos of cats tap dancing or something. Uh, who knows? I, I don't know what you're into. Um, but it was a good book. It was a really really good book. Uh, I definitely think that you have to. I mean, I would assume that this goes without saying, but I really think you have to see the first movie to actually appreciate the book and really have uh, a grip on its characters and kind of the the things that are happening around it because it's a it's a sequel it's a sequel and a prequel but if you haven't read uh, sorry if you haven't if you haven't seen the first movie I think when you're picturing the characters in particular that's where it can be kind of a problem because the the book I don't think is really going out of its way to try to give you a detailed description of what each character really looks like. Uh, some books are better at that than others, but this is one where its source material is such a iconic, well-known movie. Um, even if you haven't, you know, yourself seen it in the movie verse, uh, the Academy, uh, cinema, Hollywood, all that stuff. Uh, he is a very well-known movie. So if you've seen it, it's a lot easier to picture the characters, particularly uh, Al Pacino's character, Vincent Hanna, uh, Robert De Niro's character, Neil McCauley, and then Val Kilmer's character, uh, especially Val Kilmer's character, uh, Chris uh, Schillerus. I'm not sure. So I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name correctly, but uh, we'll just we'll just say Chris. But it really helps to have that visualization of those actors at the time playing these characters just because it, it makes it a lot easier to connect the dots. But it would be interesting to see uh, what people would think uh, if they didn't see the original movie and just decided to read this book for some reason. I don't know. I don't think it would work. Probably wouldn't be nearly as effective. So definitely watch the movie before you pick up this book and read it. Uh, and also, I'll just say, uh, before I start getting into all my real heavy thoughts on everything to do with heat, I will put in the description of this episode the links so that if you're interested in picking up Heat, the movie, uh, which was recently released on 4K, uh, not going to do like an extensive 4K review on this, but what I will tell you is that I was satisfied with it. Uh, I haven't seen the director's definitive edition, uh, which is the most recent Blu-ray release before this 4K one. 
fortunately, the the director's definitive edition on Blu-ray, it does come with the 4K release. So if you're considering upscaling, just know that you're not going to not be able to watch the previous version. You can, uh, but you'll also have the benefit of watching the 4K. So I think if you're a real fan of Heat, this is a top-tier movie for you. The 4K is kind of a no-brainer to get. I did see that there were some complaints uh, on the internet from the people that I would say are more uh, tech-savvy into tweaking their TV's picture, that sort of thing. They were saying that the the lighting uh, in certain instances was a lot darker than it should be. Colors were more muted, not as prominent. Uh, I'd have to do like a scene comparison and you know really spend time to figure that out, but I don't have that kind of time, so... I'll leave that up for you to decide, but it, it's got my endorsement if that counts for anything. Screenspeak endorses the 4K of Heat, so there you go. Uh, but anyways, I'll put the links for that in the description for the 4K and then also for the book. Okay, now I want to go ahead and start jumping into all the events uh, that happen between the movie and then the book. So this is where I'm going to really begin into spoiler territory because... I think I said this before, the Book of Heat is a prequel and a sequel. So naturally, I can't really talk about it without getting into the events of the first film uh, and then vice versa with just the book. So I'm going full-blown spoilers into this thing. So if you want to read Heat 2, the book, I would stop the podcast now, okay? I'll give you a moment here, a moment of silence to, to stop. I really hope you didn't stop. <laughs> I, I hope you didn't. I, I noticed that actually when I'm watching uh, like a YouTube video or listening to certain podcasts where they say they're going to get in the spoilers, they hardly give you a second to, to actually opt out. They, they don't do it. They just c- continue to proceed talking. And before you know it, 10 seconds later, they just already went ahead and said a spoiler. And you're like, ah, shit. Well, you know, so much for that. I won't do that. Not here. Not now. Not ever. Uh, okay. So timeline on this thing, let's go ahead and start with just the obvious of what happened with Heat, okay? If you've seen the movie Heat, you know that it takes place uh, around the early early fall of 1995. I actually had to look this up, and I, I don't know if anyone will appreciate this, but I'll, I'll give myself a pat on the back for this. I went ahead and did my best to put together a complete timeline of events from everything that happened before Heat to uh to the end of heat two so we'll we'll see how well i piece this together so i you know all the heat people out there are probably diligently going to take notes or in their head they're going to be like okay he better not screw this up no that didn't happen then damn it why did he say that (laughs) yeah whatever uh (laughs) okay Uh, i gotta i gotta take a sip of i'm actually having coffee having coffee right now just like they do in the diner that is the dumbest plug of the dumbest plug on coffee and and of this movie but whatever the show the show goes on let me let me see if this is too hot hang on okay it's a smidge too hot but i did get some sustenance out of it so we're gonna keep rolling all right so in the movie heat it is about vincent hannah and neil mccauley now vincent hannah that's al pacino he is a cop that is with the robbery homicide division of the Los Angeles Police Department. 
and him and his crew of cops, uh, which again, there's, there's some great actors. I, I said this before, just as an ensemble, there's so many actors that even if you're not great with names, you'll probably have seen them from other movies. I told you the guy that plays uh, Bubba and Forrest Gump, he's in this, uh, Ted Levine. I don't think he gets near enough credit. Most people will know him from it places the lotion in the basket. What's the fucking lotion in the basket? That's Silence of the Lambs. Uh, and then Wes Studi's in there. He's, uh, what what has he been in? And I want to say he was in like Dances with Wolves, but I actually know that he is the uh, elder Avatar. Like he is uh, Natiri's father in the Avatar film. Uh, and I'm not in the sequel because he dies from that tree basically crushing them. But a different movie. I digress. Anyways, so... Vincent Hanna and his crew, they show up on the aftermath of a robbery that went wrong uh, because Neil McCauley and his crew, they, they robbed an armored car. They robbed this, uh, this car of its bearer bonds. They have a convoluted plot of selling the bearer bonds back to the person that had them. That's another, another thing I might get to later, might not, we'll see. But one of their crew went kind of haywire and blasted one of them in the face, just straight up killed them and definitely didn't need to do it at all. Uh, so it caused, you know, it caused a lot more attention on the score uh, being pulled off than it needed to because of dipshit Wayne Grow, who essentially is the devil in, in the movie. He, I mean, Wayne Grow, if you watch it, I will tell you. Wayne Grow, as far as a character goes, he has got to be one of the most despicable, dislikable, just scum human beings <laughs> that you will see in the movie. Uh, so, ugh, when when he eats it towards the end of Heat, you're just like, oh, th- like you know, sweet justice. Like it, it feels good to see Wayne Grow go. But anyway, so basically, what ends up happening is that Vincent and his crew they end up investigating Neil and his criminal crew. While Neil is prepping for his next job, eventually the next job towards the third act of the movie, it goes down, ends up in a big drag out shootout, uh, downtown LA at like the East bank LA or far East national bank. That's, that's where it takes place at. And I mean, it gets bloody. Like there's cop cars destroyed everywhere. A couple of Neil's crew gets killed. The getaway driver, the Guy that's in Major League, I can't think of his name. I think he's also in the Allstate commercials. That's Allstate, Stan. Are you in good hands? Uh, he, he gets wasted trying to get away. Um, Tom Sizemore eventually uh, gets a bullet in the head from Al Pacino. Uh, and then really, uh, Chris, Val Kilmer's character, is the only one that really limps away along with Neil. But that doesn't last for very long because eventually uh, Hannah catches up with him and, you know, justice is is done. Um, unless you're on the side of Neil and then you're like, ah, shit, the cops got him. I wanted him to get away. It's, it's a conflicting, conflicting thing where, where you fall on the, you know, who you're rooting for in the movie. That's, that's one of the things I, I love about the movie is that you really actually see both sides perspectives pretty well. And you don't really love or hate one side or the other. Like you kind of, kind of empathize with both of them. It's, it, it makes for a compelling narrative, but all this stuff happens. And then at the very end of the movie, Heat, Chris, he escapes, uh, we see him drive away his, his girlfriend, Charlene played by Ashley judge. She gives him a signal. He bounces and with fake ID and credentials that we find out in heat two is given by Nate, 
who's kind of a criminal fixer that's played by John Voight. Um, we, we know that he gave him fake fake ID and whatnot to be able to escape from the cops and get the hell out of Dodge. So that's a very condensed, scrambled version of what happened in Heat. So now let me talk about uh, the events in Heat 2 and, and kind of get into that and some of the things I liked about it too. So I suppose this portion would probably feel a little bit like a review of Heat 2 because I'm going to talk about what I liked. Uh, and maybe there'll be some stuff I didn't like, but I can tell you there's not much. I, I, I really did enjoy the book. It was a page turner. Um, so the movie, sorry, not the movie, the book, it, it goes back and forth in, in the timeline. So sometimes it'll be in the past. Sometimes it'll be in the present or the future, but I am kind of a stickler for doing things in order for this. So I'll start with things that happened in the past and then work my way to, uh, to, you know, towards the end of the book. So, <clears throat> um, kind of a lot of cool things happen in the prequel portion of this one. We get a sense of who Chris was before he, you know, really got connected deep with Neil and his crew. We also get to see how him and Charlene met, uh, which they met in Las Vegas. Charlene was a prostitute and, and Chris, uh, they kind of have a, a subplot in the movie where Chris, sort of falls head over heels for her after he pays her for, you know, hooker services one night. Uh, and, and then he wants to get her off of being a prostitute, which, you know, that I, I, I did enjoy that sequence. It wasn't like that, you know, that memorable compared to the rest of the book, but it was still kind of nice to be like, oh, okay, that's how, that's how they met. Uh, but meanwhile, and, and I don't know, I don't actually think I said this, I'm, I'm doing it. Let, let, let me, let me. That was supposed to be a rewind of audio, but it actually sounded like a deranged nut job. Let's see that in an instant replay. It's 1988, Las Vegas. That is where Chris and Charlene meet. Um, after Chris saves Charlene essentially from being a prostitute and gets her out, uh, out of that lifestyle. Meanwhile, in Chicago in 1988, we have Macaulay, which is Robert De Niro's character, okay? We have Schillerus. I'm going to call him Schillerus. Not sure if that's, that's, if that's right. That's Chris. It's Val Kilmer. And then we have Chirito, which is Tom Sizemore's character. So during this time period, they all know each other, and it's a bit unclear as to how long they've been working together and pulling off scores and stealing. We don't really know, but... It seems like they have still known each other at least for a time, but not definitely nearly as long as when they did in 1995, which is when Heat takes place in. So we get a glimpse of them planning a score uh, in Chicago, and then also simultaneously at the same time, it turns out that Vincent Hanna, Al Pacino's character back in 1988, was a robbery homicide division cop in Chicago, not Los Angeles. I don't believe the book ever really clearly explained why he transfers out to L.A. Um, not exactly sure if that is clear or not. I'd have to maybe go back and look, but I, I don't think it ever gets explained. But in any case, he's a cop back in Chicago in 1988. And during the time that uh, Macaulay and his crew are, are pulling, you know, tra trying to pull off a score and they're planning the job, um, Vincent Hanna and not his full cop crew that he has in the movie, but I think, uh, 
Casale, uh, Castles, the the guy that's played by Wes Studi, the Native American, he's out there in Chicago. But Drucker, uh, which is Bubba from Forrest Gump, he has not been introduced yet. He comes later. So for now, it's just uh, Hannah and 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 Castles. Okay, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Castles, uh, Casals. I'll say Castles. <clears throat> They're investigating a really horrific home invasion um, that it turns out is done by a new character that's introduced named Otis Wardell. Now, here's what I say about this guy. Remember what I said about Wayne Grow earlier on, how he's basically a, a piece of human trash? Like, <laughs> I mean, like, he's, he's really bad. I feel like Wardell is like Wayne Grow 2.0. I mean, Wardell is scary. And since he was a new character, I was trying to think, how do I picture him? Because this is something I do when I read books. I, I don't know if anybody else out there is like this. But because I watch so many movies and shows and things like that, when I'm reading a book and you know I'm trying to kind of draw a picture in my mind of what this person looks like, I tend to either... You know, I tend to pick like a, an actor maybe out of something I've seen that somehow kind of resembles the mannerisms or the movement or... In other words, I sort of dreamcast the project in my head and, and pick who I think would be ideal to play this person. And the person that I end up picking to visualize as Wayne Girl in my head, I'm going to Google it right now so I don't mess this up. Uh, let's see. Michael Wincott. That is who I pictured as being uh, Otis Wardell. If you watch the movie The Crow, because that's the movie that I ended up thinking about for it, I'm not saying that I pictured his character in The Crow, like that's a totally different criminal overlord character, but I pictured a person like him playing Wardell, except just being dirtier and grosser uh, and honestly like venomous, like like a snake, just really nasty, just bleh. like you, you don't know what he's going to do and he's unpredictable too. But we find out at this point that this home invasion is being carried out by Otis Wardell. He has a crew, but it's not nearly as, as tight and organized as Macaulay's. It's just like real down and dirty criminal. I mean, like the truest sense of the word criminal without any of the brains or brawn behind it. It's just, just vicious, vicious stuff. Uh, so a lot of that stuff is happening uh, during the 1988 portion of this book. Uh, we also find out, interestingly enough, that Macaulay, which again, that's Robert De Niro, he has a, a girlfriend at the time, and he sort of has a, surrog a surrogate daughter. The girl is named; her name is Eliza, and then the daughter's name is Gabriella. And we sort of find out that contradictory to what's in the movie Heat is that he's actually like really committed to this relationship. Uh, he he really loves Eliza. He loves Gabriella. Um, they have like I think it's Uncle Tio. So they have like this tight family unit. And so you already, at least to me, when I was reading, I was getting the notion of, okay, so there was a time in Neil's life where he did actually allow attachments and things like that. Because as he famously says in the, in the movie Heat, Remember Jimmy McElwain on the yard used to say, you want to be making moves on the street, have no attachments, allow nothing to be in your life that you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. So this was before all that, before he had that strict code that he lived and died by. Uh, this was before all that. So it's it, it was interesting to see uh, a sort of more, 
not lighthearted, but open-hearted individual. He's not as closed off and, and guarded with his feelings. So I, I thought that was interesting to sort of just see a, a different version of the character as opposed to him just being younger, but basically the same. So obviously something has to change in order to get him to being uh, the more precise, uh, emotionless, almost individual that he turns out to be in Heat versus this person that he is pre-Heat. We, f- we figure out that sort of thing. We also find out that Eliza, uh, she has some criminal history herself. She's done illegal immigration, helped uh, her family, I think, smuggle immigrants over the border of Mexico into the United States. Um, so we, we sort of see that she's actually kind of in on his criminal stuff, so he doesn't actually lie to her about what he does. She totally seems to own it uh, and really... You know, I hate to say it, but it seems like she was like the love of his life. Like they really seem to fit in every sense. Um, so what ends up coming later is 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 devastating uh, to Neil. But for now, we're we're not there yet. Um, then the kind of this is where the events start to kind of convolute, where you know people's uh, characters and stories start start to kind of intersect. But Wardell who has absolutely nothing to do with Neil or his crew or his job or anything like that. He catches wind of Macaulay's upcoming score that he's planning with Eliza. Um, I'm not going to be able to say exactly, but essentially what Macaulay and his crew are trying to do is to rip off a cartel score um, shortly over the border uh, into Mexico that they think can be an easy uh, smash and grab, basically. But Wardell's a, a scumbag, and he doesn't really want to do all the heavy lifting, but he sees how tight um, Macaulay and his crew is, or at least he hears about it, and so he kind of catches catches the scent of the score, and he, and he definitely gets interested and starts to sort of trail after him until it eventually blows up in his face. Now... Uh, then what ends up happening is we we kind of get into the the the, the actual uh, pre preheat score. I'll just call it that uh, because there is a score that uh, Macaulay and his crew they play in, in Chicago. That that score happens, and I think it happens mostly successfully. But the big score that happens before the movie Heat is the one that happens in Mexico that involves the cartel. Uh, it's a Herrera cartel. If any cartel aficionados are out there, I. Don't know if there's any out there, but, uh, you know, that that's what the book says anyway. Uh, so, Wardell, he kind of starts to close in, and he eventually makes contact with Macaulay and the job. Of course, this is all after Macaulay and his crew pull off the job, uh, which, you know, just it just makes the situation worse uh, when Wardell finally gets there because all the cash is at hand. He really doesn't have to do anything other than to just show up with a bunch of guns and, and make all hell break loose. <clears throat> Hang on, I'm going to drink some coffee here. Um, so then let, let, let's see what, uh, what, what happens here. So they, you know, Macaulay and his crew, they, they pull off the score, a shootout happens at the time the score happens, but they are able to get away. But then Wardell arrives. And then what he ends up doing is first, he ends up killing the uncle, ends up killing uncle Tio, which is a pretty gruesome scene in the book. Uh, and really, anytime Wardell showed up in the book, I just assume, like, okay, this guy is here just to, pardon my language, but fuck shit up. He is 
trouble and and he's looking for it he thrives off of it he get he gets off on it in fact uh there's actually definitely weird like dominance sexual overtones with his character where like he i mean he's a rapist he he is a he's a garbage garbage scumbag person uh but he's very scary to read in the book but he kills the uncle and then he kids he kidnaps eliza uh, fortunately the daughter was like hiding in the back so she doesn't really see anything but then what ends up happening is that Wardell ends up uh, holding Gabrielle uh, not sorry not Gabrielle he holds Eliza hostage okay he holds Eliza hostage and then uh, you know but before we know it he just totally blasts her with a shotgun and it, it devastates Neil's world I mean he you know, Wardell gets away with the score. Neil's left with the love of his life, basically being dead in his arms, and his crew can really do nothing about it. Because Wardell, throughout this book, it drives you crazy. He is a snake. He gets in and out of these situations. Um, one one thing I should have said earlier is that uh, Hannah, when he's in Chicago, before he really makes contact with Macaulay and his crew, Hannah almost gets him. Um, he and his cops uh, catch catch a tip that another home invasion is going to happen. They station police there. And this really great shootout happens in the book is actually one of my favorite, uh, favorite uh, set of pages. That's me trying to say a scene, but uh, it was a really intense chapter in the book. And, and I liked there. I liked in particular, there's this part where uh, Vincent Hanna, again, this is Al Pacino. He, he's hiding. And then eventually like one of the bad guys, like, I don't know if he sees him first, but he jumps up and he's just like, surprise, motherfucker. He doesn't say it. (laughs) He doesn't say it like that. Uh, But you, if you've seen, if you've seen the original movie and you know that era of Al Pacino, you can completely picture a, a prime nineties Al Pacino saying that line just exactly like Al Pacino would. He'd just be like, surprise. Give me all you got. That's, he doesn't even say hua in the movie, but, you know, Al Pacino gets known for saying hua because of Son of a Woman, uh, and, and so on and so forth. But, um, he escapes then too, Wardell does. Wardell escapes then too, and it pisses you off because they basically nab or kill everybody else in his crew except that slimy bugger, and he gets away. So, eventually, like I said, he gets away. Weedles his uh, weasels his way down to where Macaulay's at and basically ruins his life by wasting uh, Eliza and getting away with it with the score. So uh, and then eventually, basically, he just kind of goes off into the wind. Like the, we we don't really hear much from him for a good portion um, un- until much later in the book. So that's that's what happens with uh, with Chris before with Macaulay uh, with Hannah. And, and some of the uh, other side characters as well. I, I mean, I'd say like that's a pretty good summation of the prequel portion of the book. Now, let's get into the actual sequel portion of the book, okay? Uh, so, I like how the book starts with essentially taking place immediately right after the events of the film. So, it really wastes no time getting into that. There is a short prologue. Uh, that happens uh, right right before it's uh, let me let me look I don't know if they call it like an introduction or maybe they actually just call it yeah they just say prologue so that's a nice couple set of pages in the book because it sums up very quickly the events of the first movie so that when you jump into the book uh, you're immediately kind of like brought up to speed you're like oh okay like I, I remember what went down at the end of heat 
<clears throat> so Chris, if you remember at the end of Heat, I mean, we see that he has like a different haircut, but he seems kind of screwed up from getting shot basically like in the neck collarbone area. Um, so he's basically clinging to life uh, right at the event at the end of, of Heat. And, and it's and Heat 2 Heat 2 opens like this as well. He he's barely alive. He's hiding out in some shithole motel somewhere. And then Nate, who is John Voight in the movie, he arranges for an escape so that, you know, Chris can get out of there. There is a little bit of, of, of scenes that happen where Hannah is, is hot on the trail of Chris. Like he's really trying to get him. He knows he's the only member of Macaulay's crew that actually made it out alive. But he, you know, he, he he's just He's not, he's not quick enough, not quick enough to get to him. <clears throat> so then, um, not sure how much longer after the robbery, but it, it sounds like in the book, it was probably like a couple of weeks. Eventually, Chris makes his way down through a bunch of Latin America countries until he arrives in Paraguay. Uh, and again, this is like a couple weeks after the bank robbery events in 1995. Uh, why he went down there, it's because Nate, uh, John Voight's character, seemed to have arranged for a job for him to work security for a criminal enterprise organization known as the Lou Organization. I think I'm saying that right. There's some type of uh, triad tie uh, organization down in like Ciudad del Este. I, good God. Any any Latin Americans out there, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm butchering the pronunciation of parts of your country. Uh, please don't hold it against me. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not from there, but he, he, he lands down there eventually and just kind of gets a job in security, but he, his, you know, his life's torn apart. His, his girl, Charlene, Ashley Judd, she's back in LA, his son, Dominic, we, we have no idea what the hell's happening. And, and that's sort of where we leave Chris for a minute until another year passes. So a good year passes and it's 1996. Uh, Chris is doing security. He's a little bit more stable. He's certainly healed up at this point, um, but he's bored. That's what I sort of took away from his character at this point. He's bored and he's wanting to, wanting to prove himself in a way. And he wants to elevate himself in the eyes of the lose of not just being some, you know, lunk of a security guard, but a consultant, someone that can really make some serious decisions, help, uh, basically excel at being a, a criminal and make some real serious money and not just be a, a good gunfighter. Okay. Uh, eventually he gets involved with Anna, which is the head of the enterprise, David Liu. I think it's his daughter. Uh, there is a son and, and they kind of have like a shitty dynamic, Anna and the son Felix. Uh, it's kind of weird actually kind of gave me a little bit of the, uh, if you've ever seen gladiator and, and you know how, Joaquin Phoenix's character. Uh, oh my God. Why can't I think I'm thinking Marcus Aurelius, but that's, that's the dad. That's Richard Harris. Uh, uh, Commodus. That's it. Commodus. You know, he has that really creepy love, uh, lovey rapey relationship for his, for his sister. Right. I'm not saying it's quite like that, but there is like this weird, like almost like, like odd, like sexual longing for, for his sister. And, and maybe I'm not, Maybe I'm totally misreading that in the book, but that's kind of the vibe I got. Uh, but eventually they end up getting involved, Chris and Anna, and you know I, I won't go into all that stuff on there. I, I realize at this point you're probably listening and be like, Jesus, is he just going to spoil the entire book? I'm not even going to want to read it. I, 
you know, what, what, what do you, what do you want me to tell you? This is how, this is how I got to talk about this. I, I got to get into it. Got to get into it. Right. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> uh, so then eventually I would say that Chris starts to elevate himself from being past just simple security and becomes more of a criminal operator for the organization. Uh, and he works directly alongside Anna, uh, to help pull off, um, I don't want to say like scores and whatnot, but they're, they're doing like international criminal dealings. It is definitely a step up from just doing straight up robberies. Like they're dealing with missile guidance systems, with tracking systems, uh, pretty complex stuff. Uh, but apparently Chris takes to it, uh, very, very well because he's just really eager to, to be a top, top criminal, I guess. <clears throat> and then, uh, let's keep, let's keep going forward in the timeline. So then 2000 year 2000 back in LA. So at this point, Hannah Drucker, that's, that's Bubba from Forrest Gump. They're not hot on the trail of Chris. I, I think they have accepted that he is gone. They don't know where he's at. He's just gone in the wind, right? It just happened, but they end up going back, um, just, you know, investigating cases, doing what they do best, just being cops. And Hannah gets brought on to give, like a second or a third opinion on a rape murder. And it's pretty gruesome, pretty, pretty grisly, just, ugh. but then he finds out that it is connected to Otis Wardell, that loser, loser, terrible human being, uh, you know, Wayne grow 2.0 that got away earlier. Uh, he, he picks, picks it up that this is him. This is his MO. And then we also find out that Wardell basically was unfortunately allowed to live a, a life a, a terrible life. He's, he's sort of like a, like a proprietor of like a pimp operation. It seems like he, he has like a lot of motels and things that he owns that he bought all of it with Macaulay's money that he took from him earlier. Um, and, and just like runs drugs out of them as prostitutes, uh, just really nasty, terrible things. I'd like to almost think of it as it's like, it's like if Wayne Grow had been allowed to continue to live, he may have morphed into what Otis Wardell uh, is in this book. I can't understate this enough. Wardell is horrible. I mean, he this guy has, uh, he's a vile, vile human being. Uh, but anyways, so Hannah and Drucker they they start picking up on him, and then during this time, Chris along with Anna, they get back to LA and they're setting up for a really big international deal that involves missile guidance systems. Uh, Chris eventually makes contact with his old people being Nate, which is John Voight. And then the character Kelso, which if you're a heat fan, you, you know, again, like you've seen the movie a couple of times, the name Kelso might not re- mean much to you, but that's the guy, uh, in the first movie that is in the wheelchair. He's, I think he's bald and has like the big beard and he gives Macaulay the plans for the far East LA bank to pull off the score. He's like, I got all the blueprints, man. I got a pin out here of the uh, cash flow of the bank for the past two months. How do you get this information? It just comes to you. This stuff just flies through the air. They send this information out. I mean, it's just beamed out all over the fucking place. You want to do is know how to grab it. See, I know how to grab it. So, Chris eventually makes contact with Kelso and starts to see that, hey, I could actually utilize this guy's knowledge of the dark web and, you know, black operation dealings and things like that to get him further along in his criminal exploits. Uh, There's a scene in particular where I like that Nate actually realizes that Chris is not 
just the person that he was. He's not this impulsive hotshot person. He's now a more controlled, uh, smart criminal, basically. Like he he's changed. He's 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 growing. He's getting better at what he's doing. Uh, and so there, there's there's a there's a respect there that he has for him there, which I I I enjoyed that a lot. But then Chris. He's, of course, conflicted being back in L.A. because, you know, he knows that even though this stuff that happened with that bank robbery went down years ago, uh, he's still very much a wanted person, especially in L.A., and he thinks that Hannah is probably still after him or let alone people from the robbery and homicide division. They probably still want him pretty bad. Uh, So he's kind of torn between being there, and then furthermore, he's torn because he is wanting to make contact with Charlene. He wants to make contact with Dominic, but then he's also involved with this other woman, Anna. And it's like, okay, do I continue to be with Anna or do I risk, uh, risk my, my family that I want so badly to be together to potentially get destroyed because I could get arrested. I could get them involved. I could get them killed. There's, there's a lot of decisions that he has to, that he has to play out. And I, and I enjoyed some of those, uh, parts in the, in the book as well, his, his confliction that he has on that. Uh, ultimately, what he decides to do, though, is to let them go. He decides to let them live their life. Uh, I think Charlene eventually ends up being back in Las Vegas with a pretty stable guy. Dominic goes with him, and there's a point. There's a there's a point where where Chris could actually physically see them in person again, but it never happens. It's only over a series of phone calls. Um, that he ends up really talking to her, but eventually he decides that it's best to just let them live and that if he gets involved, it's only going to make things worse and he's not going to deny this part of himself that wants to thrive in the criminal underworld. Like he's like, this is who I am. You know, this is who I am. I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna change it. And so he, he ultimately lets them go. He, he lets them go. And it's, I'm, I'm that, that, that scene in the book, uh, when he does make that realization that, you know, ultimately if he keeps doing this, he'll just get him killed or he'll just, you know, go down. Uh, it's hard. That, that was, that was a tough scene in the book, but I, I guess if I was in his situation, I probably would have done the same thing. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like Spider-Man, not, not like, not totally like Spider-Man cause Spider-Man's a superhero, but I'm saying that it's like Spider-Man's dilemma where he's like, if I have people around my dangerous lifestyle, the people I care about ultimately get killed. So if I really care about them, you got to push them away. So he pushes away. Um, now let, let's, uh, let's, let's keep going here. So that's happening. And then also, uh, another thing that's happening is Gabriella. She comes back into the picture and you'll remember that she is Eliza's daughter. That's Neil Macaulay's girlfriend's daughter or his, his surrogate daughter that he's lost contact with this point. Uh, and certainly isn't able to make contact now because at the time in this book, he, he's dead. Cause remember he gets, he gets killed by Hannah, uh, in, in the book or not the gosh, not the book, the movie, right? You're following me, I think, right? We'll, we'll see. If you're not, I mean, you would have turned it off long ago and just been like, oh, I don't know. He just really likes heat a lot. We'll just, <laughs> we'll just let him run out of gas and, until he figures it out. But no, 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 no. You're here. I know you're following. <laughs> okay. So Gabriella is back. She is working as a waitress. And then guess who shows up to order some food and a drink? I think he orders like a Pepsi or something. It's Wardell. Yeah, I shit you not. His rat ass shows up and 
he doesn't recognize her straight away, but he sees that there's fear in her eyes. He sees that she is recognizing that, oh my God, this is the person that murdered my mother. And she doesn't even like necessarily realize it right away, but it's like she has an instinct in her like when they make contact uh, with their eyes that that this person is bad and that she needs to get away from him. But eventually Wardell kind of picks up that this person is going to basically drop a dime on him. He uses some, some slang to basically say this person's going to ID me to the cops. Uh, Cause at this point in the book, he's going under a different alias uh, living his shitty surrogate pimp life, uh, or he's being a pimp overlord, whatever you call that. I sound stupid when I talk about that, but <laughs> I don't know how else to say he's a pimp overlord. He is terrible running the bunch of pimps, uh, pimp, uh, he's not running a bunch of pimps. Good Lord. Why can't I say this? He is a boss of a bunch of pimps that work out of hotels, motels, uh, Okay, you know what? I think the wor- the more I get into this point, the 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 worse it's gonna be. So I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna continue to just keep going. Um, so they recognize each other, and then eventually, uh, Wardell tries to uh, get her, and then while Chris is back in L.A., uh, this is I think after the time that he decides to let Charlene and Dominic go, he keeps having this inkling that he's like, I gotta get revenge. Uh, I got to get revenge on, you know, for Neil, uh, Hannah, Hannah, Hannah killed him. And, and Neil and him were tight. Uh, he says a couple of times that he's my brother from another mother, like they are tight. And so he really wants to go after Neil, but at the same time, he knows damn well, this guy's a cop and he's not just a cop. He's a pretty highly decorated cop going after him is like suicide. And, you know, it's just like a big no. You don't you don't screw with him unless you want your life to be over and either just to be wasted by the police or get the death penalty. Like it's suicide to go after him. But he's compelled to try uh, to get revenge for him. And so eventually, eventually he starts to starts to trail and make a plan to execute Hannah. Okay. Uh, and then while while that's happening as well, eventually Hannah. He picks up closer to Wardell's scent, and this is at the point when he eventually, Wardell, gets Gabriella, uh, and he starts kind of trying to make a getaway with her to likely probably rape, murder, uh, just do god-awful things to her. But Hannah, thankfully, is not far behind along with Drucker, and then this big, big action sequence happens where I think it's all on a highway, I want to say, or it's around there. Uh, cars are crashing. There's a big shootout with the police and Wardell. And then Chris actually eventually ends up showing up because he's been tailing Hannah this whole time. Uh, and then he actually recognizes Gabriella and he's like, Oh my God, this is, you know, this is, uh, Neil's girlfriend's daughter. Like he, he hadn't seen her for, I think like 10 years at this, at this point in the book, but he, he sees her and he, instinctually ditches the the notion of assassinating Hannah and actually starts to help Gabriella, which is really cool in the book when that happens. Uh, and, and that's, and I'll say, I'll say this at this point in the book, you're either totally buying into all these coincidences and timelines interlapping or you're not. I can say myself that the book was written well enough that I understood when the points connected and you could argue coincidence all day long, but I felt it was effective and it was still being told very well. Uh, so I, I liked it and I got surprised when some of these moments happened in the book. They, they definitely caught me off guard because I was, I was invested into it. I, I liked the ride. Okay. 
so then this crash uh this crash happens this big highway shootout occurs and whatnot uh and then eventually thank god hannah finally catches up to wardell and kills him and it's it's glorious when it happens and it's so you're, you're so happy in a way that hannah is the one to do it one because we know that wardell uh, he's done all the terrible things he's done throughout the book. So seeing him finally get uh, justice by way of a bullet to the head from a police officer is is certainly compelling. It's a it's a you know intense scene in the book, but then also I felt at least myself as a reader and a fan of the of the movie and and everything like that. I felt like he was almost not. He can't erase what he did to Macaulay because, you know, he kills Macaulay not because he wanted to, but because he's compelled uh, as a police officer to, you know, to do justice to to uh, what do you call it? Follow the rule of law. Right. But I still think that in a way it's like he, he kind of did revenge. He, he got revenge in a way that Macaulay probably wishes he could have on him. So I'm glad to see that he somehow was able to to bring him down and, and I don't know, maybe I'm reaching there, but I feel like there was some kind of like a weird, like ghost handshake where it's like, Hey Macaulay, like I I got this scumbag for you. Not the same thing. And I'm probably definitely reaching on that point, but I, I was feeling that vibe when that happened. But then, uh, Drucker, he ends up recognizing Chris from surveillance after the whole aftermath of this whole thing. And he's like, Oh shit, man, it's back on. He's like, let's like, it's like Chris Schiller is back. Let's get him. Uh, but at this point it's too late. Uh, Chris and Anna, they've already, they've already bailed. They they've gotten out of LA. So bye-bye, bye-bye, Chris ain't going to happen. And then this is when the final, uh, final parts of the book happen where Chris and Anna are pulling off this one last, not one last job, but this certainly big international missile guidance deal. Uh, Anna's family attempts to do a double cross, and you know the the family, the Lou's, are thinking that they're being smart and they're they're going to get them. But Chris is already on top of it. He he hires a bunch of mercs, and this big shootout. Um, <clears throat> this big shootout occurs, and and then eventually. Uh, Felix, uh, Anna's creepy dipshit brother, he ends up getting killed by Chris. That was another intense scene in the book. And then really, and this is where you would certainly argue that you're like, I don't know if that's the right thing to do, but Chris doesn't tell Anna that he did it. Like he, cause he knows and he explains his rationale for it where he's like, I know damn well that even though she didn't like the brother, if I admit that I killed the brother, She's not going to be with me. It doesn't matter. Blood is blood. Like she, she's going to, she, how could she want to be with the person that murdered her brother? Okay. He's scum. You know, the brother's terrible, but you know, family's family. So he doesn't tell her, doesn't tell her, but it ends up seemingly to, to go off. Okay. Uh, they're able to pull this deal off and basically Chris has sort of leveled up to an even higher level uh, of criminal and, and they sort of, you know, kind of go off into the sunset, probably going to do more criminal dealings. We don't really know. And then the very final scene in the book, which I can already picture it perfectly when I am listening or (laughs) not listening when I'm reading the book, I can picture the scene perfectly in my head, how it would play out as a movie. So Hannah visits the blue room, which is Nate's bar. Um, I don't know if they really alluded to that much in the, in the movie that he has his own bar, John Voight's character, but he shows up, 
think Nate pours him a drink and they specifically say in the book that the Rolling Stones song, Give Me Shelter, is playing. And, and Hannah's just sitting there drinking. Then Nate eventually, you know, stumbles over to him and starts talking. And then Hannah just looks up and I, I, I could just, I could picture Al Pacino doing it. It's so, it's so clear in my mind. He, he just looks up and he says, so what are you not going to tell me about Chris Schiller is? And then it's just like a boom. Like I could just see it cut to black right there, directed by Michael Mann credits. Uh, and he says it with a smile because he knows damn well that Chris is still out there and alive. And it sort of, it sort of alludes to that if there was ever like a heat three or if they were going to continue it in some way that Hannah is still, he's never going to give up. Uh, he'll, he'll go after Chris until he doesn't have a breath left in his body. Cause once he knows somebody's back out there, he's, he's a predator. He'll, he'll keep going. He'll keep going after you. Uh, and that, and that my friends on screen speak pretty much wraps up heat to the book. I definitely was not anticipating going into as much depth on the book as I did specifically and recalling all the key events that happened in the book, but I didn't really know how else to talk about it. So, uh, but I, I did give you a spoiler alert earlier. I did. So, you know, it, you've read the book if you're listening to this episode or you at least had interest in it. Uh, so I just wanted to talk about all the, the key scenes of that book that really stood out to me uh, and just really really lay out the timeline as well, just so that it all made sense from preheat, heat, and heat too. So anyways, those were, uh, I guess that was just my re- retelling, uh, so to speak, of the book. Uh, albeit though, not albeit, <clears throat> that was just my retelling of the book. I-, I could tell you the book does it much better than me, so I would certainly recommend reading Heat 2 if you have not already done so. I assume if you are listening at this point in the podcast, you have. Otherwise, what I will do for the people that wanted to continue listening after I said, oh, spoiler, uh, end of spoilers for Heat 2. Okay, let me say that again. End of spoilers for Heat 2 now. (laughs) Okay, I will just say as far as a book goes, I I mean, I really did enjoy the book. I I don't know how much Meg Gardner, the the co-author, did for the book, but... Michael Mann, I, I mean, I think I thought it was cool. <laughs> Sounds so. I thought it was cool, man. Of course, of course, I thought it was cool. But I like the level of detail that he did for the book. You can clearly tell that when he's describing the scenes, uh, particularly in Paraguay and Latin America, that he certainly seems to have done some research in international uh, dealings, criminal dealings in the underworld, uh, import export businesses how cartel businesses operate, things like that. There's definitely some research that I feel like he did for this because uh, I really appreciated the descriptions. I liked seeing uh, there to be more... Um, we, we got more insights into the characters. I also particularly like seeing a, a younger version of Al Pacino because uh, he's, you know, he's a bit of a... He gets a high off the hunt. Uh, which that's kind of apparent when you watch the movie, but in earlier years of Al Pacino's character, we see that he's, you know, he's popping Adderall pills. He's, you know, all his relationships suck. He just basically lives for, for hunting people. 
Uh, and I felt like his his uh, his vitality towards doing that when he when he's younger, it, it's just much more prominent in in those earlier years of the character's life. I like that we got to know a lot more about Chris than we did in the in the movie because Val Kilmer's character is, is definitely more of a supporting character, whereas in this one he's certainly more of a lead. Uh, so I definitely thought that that was really interesting. So um, I'm 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 kind of rambling a little bit on this, but I re- I really liked Heat too. Um, I I really really liked it. I would definitely recommend uh, you read it if you're a fan. And probably what I'll end up doing with the book, apart from it either just staying on my shelf, if I if I find another Heat fan out there that hasn't already read the book, I'll just either give them the book or just borrow it and want it back. Uh, just because it's a cool-looking book to keep on the shelf. All right, so talked all about uh, Heat, the initial thoughts on the movie. Talked all about Heat uh, Two, the the timeline of the events in the book, and some of the you know some of the bigger moments in it and whatnot. But what I want to do now, uh, what I want to wrap the podcast up on for its its third act, if you want to call it that is I want to get into the some of the themes that are inside of Heat because the themes that Heat explores ultimately are why, to me, it's such a fascinating uh, movie to watch. Again, not just for the action, but mainly for the characters. So I want to start exploring that a little bit more uh, right now. <clears throat> so one thing I think that's really apparent when we are watching Heat and, and looking at the characters is the philosophy of yin-yang. I, I really th- was thinking about all the different underlying themes and, and, and uh, ideas that are being played out in this movie. And Yin Yang came to mind to me because it represents duality. It's representing opposite characteristics that are coexisting within the same space. So if we're looking at heat, we see that Al Pacino is representative of the law. Robert De Niro, Macaulay, is representative of criminals. Yet you can't have one without the other. If there were to, if there were no criminals ever, there would be no cops. Whereas if there are criminals, or sorry, whereas if there were uh, no cops, there would just be criminals. So you have to have the two, um, and and they ultimately have to go against each other. There there really can be no no light without the darkness, so to speak. And more so in the idea of yin-yang is that there are two sides that are connected, but they are constantly flowing together uh, simultaneously. I I, I guess I said this before, they can't exist without each other. Uh, So I really think that the movie is very smart in how it is exploring this philosophy, particularly between the characters of Macaulay and Hannah. Uh, Also, I would say that I love the mutual respect element between Hannah and Macaulay in the movie. And I think that is really represented perfectly well in that coffee shop scene. I think I said earlier that I was going to come back and talk about that, so I'm doing it again right here. The coffee shop scene in the movie Heat is iconic for, for a lot of different reasons. And I'll say it's one of my favorite scenes in movie history. Before I get into all that, though, I can say it did. it, it, it took me... It took me some time to get there to see why people were salivating over this scene so much. Like, why is this scene sticking out amongst all the other scenes in Heat? Like, what is so special about this? Well, for that to answer that question, we got to go back to the time that this movie came out, December of 1995. First, 
Al Pacino and De Niro at this point in their careers, they were, I'd say, peaking for sure. I mean, they were already well-established actors, arguably some of the best of their generation. I would still make that case to this day. But they hadn't actually shared any real screen time together. They did both star in Godfather 2, but it was during different timelines. Uh, De Niro, I want to say, it's been a minute since I've seen Godfather 2, you're just like, oh, like the, the film people out there are like, wait a minute, you're going to talk about Godfather 2 and then say you've barely seen it? Yeah, uh, that's true. But uh, let's see. Hang on. I, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing it back. I'm getting the thoughts back. <clears throat> De Niro was a younger Vito Corleone, whereas uh, Al Pacino is Michael Corleone uh, in the future after the events of Godfather Part 1. So they never actually are on the screen at the same time. And I think people for some time uh, when this movie was coming out and, and years before it, they always wanted these two actors to be in the same movie together. They're titans of their industry. They're titans in crime movies and whatnot. So it only made sense to get these two people to be in a movie together. So I think at the time when he came out, I, I was only like four or five years old at the time, but I know it was a big draw for why this scene was so critical to happen. And in the movie, they're, they're trying, uh, well, Hannah's trying to get Macaulay and Macaulay's trying to outsmart Hannah and his crew. And so this is the first time where like these two opposite sides of the coin are meeting. And so that's where a lot of the intensity and drama plays out in the scene. But then I go back to mutual respect being, I think the essence of the scene and what gives it its charm and what gives it, I don't know. It's, it's staying power, uh, is because a, these characters they know each one of them represents a threat to the other big time, but yet they recognize the skill. Hannah recognizes that Macaulay, as he says, is not, you know, doing a bunch of thrill seeking with his criminal, with his criminal wrongdoings and whatnot. He's like, do you see, I'll, I'll definitely put in the clip of the, of the scene, but he is talking about, he's like, you see, like I got like a born to lose tattoo on my chest. You see me doing thrill seeking and liquor store holdups. And Hannah's like, no, I do not. Uh, so there is a, there's a clear respect there. Whereas Macaulay, he recognizes what Hannah is. He doesn't hate him. He understands that he has to exist. You know, there needs to be law, you know, if criminals were ruling, ruling everything, we, you know, the world would just be an absolute chaos. So even he knows there needs to be law and order for sure. And he recognizes that, yeah, like there's going to be cops out there that put people away. He kind of compartmentalizes it and keeps it simply. It's like you you do what you do best, try to stop guys like me, and I do what I do best. I pull I pull off scores. So there's a mutual respect and understanding and acceptance for who the other person is. And so when they're having this dialogue with each other, the acting is so brilliant between the two of them because it's it's subtle. They're playing off of each other's strengths. They're bouncing off of each other. Even the most minute little facial expressions that they show are showing that these are people that are hyper-focused and intense. They are good at what they do. They pay attention to the details. And in this one moment, it's like a truce. It's like they're they're there just accepting each other and, and, and trying to learn a little bit about the other as well. And it's just an absolutely fascinating scene. It's, it's certainly one of the best. So I, I, I got to go ahead. I got to go ahead and put it in here. And I think even in podcast format, just listening to the dialogue playing off of each other, you'll you'll appreciate this this scene for what it is. So here we go. 
Seven years in Folsom. In the hole for three. McNeil before that. McNeil is tough as they say. You looking to become a penologist? You looking to go back? You know, I chase down some crews, guys just looking to fuck up, get busted back. That you? You must have worked some dipshit crews. I worked all kinds. You see me doing thrill-seeker liquor store hold-ups with a born-to-lose tattoo on my chest? No, I do not. Right. I am never going back. Then don't take down scores. I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best, trying to stop guys like me. So you never wanted a regular type life? The fuck is that? Barbecues and ball games? Yeah. This regular type life, that your life? My life? No, my life. No, my life's a disaster zone. I got a stepdaughter so fucked up because her real father's this large type asshole. I got a wife. We're passing each other on the downslope of a marriage, my third. Because I spend all my time chasing guys like you around the block. That's my life. Guy told me one time, don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around the corner. Now, if you're around me and you got to move when I move, how do you expect to keep a, a marriage? Well, that's an interesting point. What are you, a monk? I have a woman. What do you tell her? I tell her I'm a salesman. So then if you spot me coming around that corner, you're just gonna walk out on this woman? Not say goodbye? That's the discipline. That's pretty vacant, no? Yeah, it is what it is. It's that or we both better go do something else, pal. I don't know how to do anything else. Neither do I. I don't much want to either. Neither do I. You know, I have this uh, recurring dream. I'm sitting at this big banquet table, and all the victims of all the murders I ever worked are sitting at this table, and they're staring at me with these black eyeballs because they got eight ball hemorrhages from the head wounds. And there they are, these big balloon people, because I found them two weeks after they'd been under the bed. The neighbors reported the smell. And there they are, all of them just sitting there. What do they say? Nothing. No talk? None. Just, they don't have anything to say. See, we just look at each other. They look at me, and that's it. That's the dream.
I have one where I'm drowning. And I gotta wake myself up and stop breathing or I'll die in my sleep. You know what that's about? Yeah. Having enough time. Enough time to do what you want to do. That's right. You're doing it now. Not, not yet. You know, we're sitting here, you and I are like a couple of regular fellas. I mean, you do what you do, I do what I gotta do. And now that we've been face to face, if I'm there and I gotta put you away, I won't like it. But I'll tell you, if it's between you and some poor bastard whose wife you're gonna turn into a widow, brother, you are going down. There's a flip side to that coin. What if you do got me boxed in? Then I gotta put you down. Because no matter what, you will not get in my way. We've been face to face, yeah. But I will not hesitate, not for a second. Maybe that's the way it'll be. Or who knows? Or maybe we'll never see each other again. Ah, chef, that's that's the chef's kiss right there. Just well, well done. Well done, Michael Mann. Well done, Al Pacino. Well done, De Niro. Uh, ab- absolutely tremendous scene. And another thing that I will say that I love about the scene and the overall movie Heat as a whole is its score. I absolutely love the music of Heat. I'm grabbing the movie right now. I think it's Elliot. Uh, what is it? Who did the music for this? I got to figure this out. Elliot Goldenthal. I think he did the music for Rudy, I want to say. I could be off on that. But terrific score. I think it, I don't know, it captures this, God, I wish I could talk about music better. I got, I got to read up on music or figure out how to, how to describe it when it really works on your emotions. But the music and heat, uh, particularly during that scene, it has like this sense of melancholy underneath it because these two people as, as they said in the scene, like they, they have these messed up recurring dreams. Their, their lives are certainly not perfect. Um, so there's like this like sense of like loneliness and, and longing for something better, but they're almost like both powerless to, to fully, to fully do anything about it because ultimately the things they do define who they are. And like this, this is the life that the, that they live. So I don't know. Like, does that, does that make sense? It's compelling. Damn it. <laughs> uh, okay. Let me see a couple of other things. Uh, another thing that, that strikes me in the movie heat is how it plays on people's perceptions in the world. If you really think about it, because Hannah and Macaulay, they exist in the same world, 
though totally on opposite sides, but they're the way they perceive things is so wildly different. And that's a, that's a concept I could talk about on the podcast, off the podcast for a long time is how people perceive things in the world. Like I, I was talking with my wife actually about this not that long ago saying how my older brother and I, now he, him and I grew up in the same house for a long time and we have a lot of the same memories together, meaning that we were in the same place at the same time together doing the same thing. And yet if I talk to him about some of these certain instances where we're together, he's going to give you, you know, he'll tell you the same events as they like just, you know, factually happen, but his take or his interpretation of the, the, the momentum of things or the subtleties that happened up during that moment or things that he picked up on and remembered are things that I would not have because our personalities and our persons are different. And so I just think that's fascinating that a person can experience so many of the same things in life, but yet have a completely different outlook uh, and ultimately live their life in a totally different way. So I think he really does an excellent job of, of exploring that concept. I'd also say it shows the, the benefits and consequences of obsession Hannah's obsessed with hunting criminals and he's damn good at it, but he can't have basically any personal relationships last. He says in the movie famously that he's like, I'm on the downside of my third marriage. I think he actually said in the, in the clip that I put in before of the coffee shop scene that, you know, everything's just basically going, going to shit. It's, it's just bad. He, he can't, he can't have a, can't have a wife. How could he? He's out at like three in the morning hunting the criminals. So it shows that there's a heavy toll on it from his personal life, but then also because he deals with the worst of the worst in terms of human behavior and seeing what people can do to each other. Uh, I mean, how could it not wear on you and just make you so much older than you actually are? Uh, so I think that's that's kind of the price that obsession pays where it's like you're excellent at what you do. You're, you're great at this one singular thing, but if you get too... If you get too focused and dialed in on it, you're ultimately going to have other aspects of your life uh, really suffer from it. And then the same is said from Macaulay, because from his point of view, he is intense. He is precise. He is very practical and smart and, and knows how to handle himself in tight situations. But then at the same time, that kind of uh, detachment that he has from things causes himself to to experience loneliness, to never really be able to have intimacy with somebody, to never really be able to have a fulfilling life with, you know, real deep connections with people. Because as he says, he's like, I, you know, guy taught me in, in jail once that he's like, you, you cannot be attached to anything that you're not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat. If you spot the heat coming from around the corner, uh, it's, it's intense, but it's, I don't know. I think I think I'm on to something there, maybe. But other things that I think the the movie does well, I think it's it captures the the rush that a person gets when they're just truly present and living in the moment. Uh, certainly, certainly so. I think you you see that in Pacino's character when he's gunning, and I mean like he's almost like a frothing dog, like at the mouth. He's so he's so eager and anxious to get. De Niro and and Chris and and Tom Sizemore and all the people at the end of Heat. I mean, when he has that that great shot where he's running down 
the road after him. He has the rifle, and you can just tell his adrenaline is through the roof. Uh, I, I love how Heat shows just the pure, raw energy that comes from just being in the moment. I, I, I don't know. I think that's something. <clears throat> um, another thing uh, as well is, is the emotional attachment side, which I kind of talked about that with Obsession. Um, you know, Neil's character in particular shows like really what can happen when you get too emotionally attached. I talked about that in, in Heat 2, the, the book, when it shows that at one point he was more open to it. But then in the in the movie Heat, he certainly is very guarded with his feelings. And he does let a woman in. Uh, I think it's Addie is her name, the, the one that's a graphic designer. Uh, they have that terrific scene, which it's also... If I said the coffee shop scene was my favorite, like just straight straight up acting drama scene in the movie... I would say that uh, I'm trying to think, how do I describe this? I'll just set the scene for you and, and maybe it'll come to me as I talk about it. So towards the third act, this is not towards the third act after the third act of the movie. Uh, this is almost towards the end of the movie. The job has happened. The bank robbery has happened. A lot of it went to shit, but Macaulay ultimately got away. He has the money. He has clean like passport and everything to get out of LA. If he like leaves tonight, he has his girl with him. That's even agreed to drop her life and go with him. And so we see that he can make, he can make a run for it. Like he can cleanly get away, but Wayne grow Wayne grow. Remember him? So he kills that that guy during the first job at the armored security truck and, you know, wronged his crew. He got away, um, made his life hell, screwed things up for people. So Macaulay's like torn because he's like, God, I want to get away. But he's like, you know, he, he, ha- he has a code too. It's like just as the cops have like a strict justice code. He has a code for being, you know, essentially a good criminal. And he can't for the life of him just get out of town and walk away from it all knowing that Wayne Grow was able to get away. So they have this great scene where he's going through the tunnel and they're playing that music again, that score from Elliot Goldenthal. They're playing that and you can just tell that it's have he's having this conflict and he he's not saying anything. There's no words. He's just driving in the car. And but you can see it on his face. He's like deciding he's like, do I go for Wayne Grow? Do I not go for Wayne Grow? Do I go for Wayne Grow? Do I not go for him? And you as the audience member know, you're just like, oh, he's going to do it. Like, he, he's going to go for him. He won't be able to live with himself. No way. And he gets off the shoulder and and he ultimately goes for Wayne Grow, which, again, I know I said this earlier, leads to a satisfying death of piece of shit Wayne Grow. Like, we're, we're all too happy to see him get wasted because he is a really scummy, scummy human in the movie for sure. Uh, and it also feels like justice is being done to him, especially by Macaulay himself. But I feel like the audience at that point knows that at that point it's over for Macaulay. Like, and, and I, and I think actually he might've known that too, in a weird way. I'm actually just realizing this talking about it. I think he maybe even knew that by going after Wayne grow, he could probably get him, but that he himself would have to go down and not go back to jail. Cause as you said, he ain't going back. Um, but that, that scene always gets me cause you you're rooting for him almost. You're like, come on, man. Like you can get out. You can do it. It, it drives you insane. But, but you know, I don't know. He, he can't let Wayne grow go. And he certainly doesn't. Uh, but where I go to the emotional attachments, just tying it back to that, is how 
after he gets Wayne Grow and he gets back in the car, you know, Hannah's right on his tail and he has to make that he has to make another snap decision where it's like, do I try to get away with the girl? Or am I going to be able to get away without her? Like, cause he, he can't really get to the car at the position that he's at. He's like, I got to either leave with her or leave without her. And you can tell it hurts him. You, you can certainly tell it does, but he makes the call to, to try to get away with, without her. And I, I don't know. I think about that. I think about where the emotional attachments are in our lives and how much weight and, and sway they really hold over us. Uh, hang on one second. I was about to, I was really on to something there. And then my cat is, is meowing. I don't even remember her being in here, but she's here. So give me a second. I'm going to let her out. Come on, Clarice. You want out? Come on. Come on. Go. Go. Yeah. Okay. I'm back. So anyway, so, uh, you know, going back to the emotional attachments on there, it's, it's powerful and having the discipline to separate your emotions from what's going to be more practical for you is not always an easy decision to make. Uh, so it's another element that I love that heat explores. I also find heat to be poetic, uh, just as a film, it's epic. There's good and evil, not evil, but there, there's, there's two sides that, that are fighting together and it's, creates conflict and chaos and and there's hurt but there's also i don't know i wish i could get into that more but i i definitely think there's a lot of poetic elements uh within heat so yeah there's there's poetic elements there um let me let me see what else what else would i want to say about this Ooh. I think this is the last thing that I will I'll talk about for this and then I'll start to wind things down in this podcast and and that's time. That's something that I connected to when I watched Heat for the first time. This is particularly on Macaulay's character is that he feels like he doesn't have time. They say this in the coffee shop scene when he says how he has this recurring dream that he's drowning that he's doesn't have enough time to, to do everything that he needs to do with his, his life, almost like knowing that he ain't going to live a long life with the, with the things that he does. And I'm not saying that I feel like I'm going to, you know, drop dead at like the age of 40 or something like that, or, or however old he is when he goes. But I have that happen sometimes. I really do. I really do. People is feeling the pressure of time. I have a lot of drive. I have a lot of, hard work in me. I, I, I'd like to think I produce it in a lot of elements of my life, but time is, it's like, it's a constant. And I wouldn't say like, I, I get afraid of it, but I certainly could feel it creeping on me sometimes when it's like, Hey man, I, if you do this, it's going to take X amount of time. And then you're not going to be able to do this. Are you wanting to not do this? Are you sure you have a choice? So time can be a real bitch on that. And I really just liked how that's representative in, in Neil's character, (laughs) not Neil's character and De Niro's character, Neil. Um, I don't know. That's, that's another thing I could probably talk about at at great length is, is time. And, and also knowing that, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put this quote in here. I won't actually insert the audio for it, but I'll, I'll say that I think this quote kind of makes sense. It's actually from Creed. 
the the Rocky uh, spinoff movie with Michael B. Jordan. When they first meet in the in Rocky's uh, bar, Adrian's, he eventually says, uh, oh, "I'm trying to think." He's Michael B. Jordan is asking him about his his dad Apollo and. And Rocky says, you know, he's like, well, who, who defeated him? He just says, like, time. You know, he's like, time time, time gets everybody. It's it's undefeated. It's it's going to get you in the end no matter what. So, I don't know. I, I guess my final thought on time and all that stuff is just saying that we probably shouldn't be afraid of it. I mean, it, it's, it's inevitable. It'll happen. So, I think if you spend too much time thinking about it, you ultimately won't live as fulfilling of a life. You'll forget to live. So rather than just, you know, always worry about it being over your back, I think just accept it and and be self-aware enough to be mindful of how you are spending your time and, and don't spend your time in ways that you don't want to do it. So uh, that's what I have to say about that. And that's all I have to say about that. All right, everybody, that's going to cover all the thoughts that I have on Heat and, and its book, Heat 2. Uh Really, really sincerely appreciate everybody listening out there. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you uh, maybe got something out of this or at least at the very least, uh, just liked hearing me talk about heat and, and all the, the great moments that happened in it. Some of my favorite things from it and why it's uh, such a special movie to me and, and why it's so great. Uh, and if it's not already, if this episode isn't already a glowing endorsement of heat, um, I'll, I'll just say this. This episode is an endorsement to watch Heat and appreciate it. <laughs> okay, that's where, where whatever happened to the subtlety, man? Like where where did that come from? I I, I don't know. Okay, it's getting late. I I need to stop. I I've been I've been blabbering now for a little while. So thank you very much, everybody, for for listening out there. I got more content coming down the road. Um, still working to get new guests on the podcast, maybe get some old ones to return as well. Uh, but in any case, really appreciate your support and just keep coming back and I'll keep the content coming. Take care, everybody. <laughs>